Welcome to the Trauma Podcast. I'm John Maddox. I'm one of the trauma surgery and critical care fellows here at the R. Adams Cali Shock Trauma Center, University of Maryland. Uh, we are joined today by Dr. Thomas Scalia, the physician-in-chief for the R. Adams Cali Shock Trauma Center and professor of surgery at the University of Maryland. Dr. Scalia, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Sir, liver injuries are particularly daunting to me as a young surgeon. I would like to take advantage of this opportunity to learn from your years of experience by going through a few clinical scenarios and questions. So, to start. At laparotomy, for a grossly unstable blunt trauma patient with a positive FAST, you encounter a large volume hemoperitoneum with high-grade right lobe hepatic injury. How do you approach damage control surgery for the liver? Yeah, I think that um, the older I get, the fewer the number of operations I do, and I do them more often. I, I think if you you have a bunch of years of experience that a good look and a feel of the liver tells you a, a huge amount. People talk about a Pringle and I think that's fine, but when you operate on somebody with a high-grade blunt injury to the right lobe of the liver, the Pringle is not going to work. It may reduce the volume of hemorrhage, but those people always have a hepatic vein injury or some component of hepatic vein injury. And so the idea that you're going to do the Pringle and the field's going to be dry, in my mind, is just not realistic. I think it's okay you get a little bit of bang out of it. I think the first thing that it's wise to do is pack the liver. And packing, to me, is a surgical operation. It's not taking 30 lap pads and shoving them up and saying, I hope it's okay. So you take the falciform down. I don't take the uh, triangular ligaments down at that point. I put a couple of laps above the right lobe, a couple above the left lobe. I put a couple, three below um, the liver and I push the liver up into the diaphragm. It's eight or ten laps. It's not a million. And it's a diagnostic test as well as a therapeutic maneuver. If that stops the bleeding, I think that it's a time to let the anesthesia guys catch up and then decide what, if anything else, you want to do. For somebody with a, a deep liver injury, I think it's a great time to ask whether you're going to use endovascular care. Because once you stick your finger in it, it's hard to make that go away and rewind and, and make that bleeding stop. And so I pack and if I've used a Pringle, I come off the Pringle and if that seems to control the hemorrhage, maybe I get the endo guys in or if I was wise enough to be in the hybrid room, right, you can just, now's a great time to get the catheter in and, and do a um, diagnostic and therapeutic test slash maneuver. If it doesn't stop, then you have to do something. And to me, the next um, decision is, is based on where is it? Because 
I'm always thinking about what's my fallback position. If you do this well, in my mind, you're mentally two steps ahead of your hands. And it's always, what am I going to do when this doesn't work? People talk about finger fracture, and I don't think that's a great maneuver most of the time. And I, you know, at conference, at least a few times a year, I laugh at this point and say, this, there's a reason that every time you see it, it's a line drawing. Because it's, it's not so simple. You don't just open it up and say, oh yeah, that's what's bleeding, particularly with blunt trauma. Lots of stuff is bleeding, and you have to divide, if you have to divide a lot of liver, then that's gonna be, it's gonna be a problem. It's gonna make the bleeding worse when you do that. Now, the next issue comes down to what can you do for definitive hemostasis? And if you're lucky, and this is a relatively peripheral injury, and I mean not in the middle of the liver, I think that the next move is the Breedman hepatectomy. And to me, that is the best. It's the op liver operation I do the most often now almost 40 years into this. And that's based on a realization that I came to about eight or 10 years ago. The blood comes up in the porta, it goes through the liver and there's a bridge of liver that's still intact. So it goes across that bridge and it bleeds from both sides of the injured segment. If you take out the injured segment and lateral, then there's only one surface from which the liver can bleed. It's a lot easier to see it then. And for me then, what I do is I put the Pringle on, I note the time, and then I take out the right lobe, or the, I mean, the left lobe is relatively straightforward. I take out the lateral portion of the damaged liver. And I, I do that, we, I do it these days mostly with staplers, though I don't think you actually need to use the staplers. What, in the past, what I did is I just put my hands on medial to the injury and pushed down. That could, that's your Pringle out that includes the hepatic vein, right? Then you just take, frankly, a pair of scissors or you take the cautery or the argon or anything and you divide the liver and now you only have one surface from which the liver is going to bleed. And I can push with my hands harder than the liver can bleed. If that's true then, I'll ease up a little bit and the big thing in the back that starts to bleed is the hepatic vein. Put a stitch in it. The rest of it now is the more central hepatic artery and um, portal vein branches, which and you should get some help with the with the Pringle with that, and then you can. Those are a little easier to see. Control do you, those. Do you approach those just over sewing, or do you have any other tricks for taking care of the the raw edge of that? Liver? Yeah, I I will. Um, 
the main the named vessels need a stitch and you guys have operated with me enough to know that I don't actually care what suture you use the only thing I care about is the needle and I want something on a big semicircle needle and I don't know who teaches young surgeons to sew these days but everybody that teaches you guys to sew teaches you to take a long skimpy bite and that'll kill you here you need to turn the needle at right angles, go into the substance of the liver, and turn your hand over so you use the whole surface of the, of the available length of needle. And that'll get you a substantial bite of liver, and then you can tie it down. If you take that skippy bite, it'll tear and just keep bleeding. And then you've just taken that and made, and made it worse. The last thing I do, or not the last, but one of the other tricks I have for that raw surface bleeding is I take a zero chromic on the blood liver tip needle and I straighten the liver, uh, the needle out, and I go through the liver top to bottom or bottom to top, and I put a mattress suture in, and then that's going to compress the edge of the liver. You, the capsule's intact, so you get a little help from that. And instead of tying it down, I set the tension with a hemoclip, medium clip usually. And that'll compress the surface of the liver and will take care of, a, frankly, a lot of relatively annoying level, but some relatively high volume hemorrhage. And then I throw a couple of stitches onto the hemoclip so when the hemoclip falls off, the suture is still effective. And we invented that maybe about 15 years ago. And I, I think it's a great trick. Well, you mentioned the Pringle maneuver a couple of times as sort of an initial stopgap. Do you have any tips and tricks on how to get that quickly and efficiently and not mess around with it. Yeah, I don't think it. I actually think if you know the anatomy, this is pretty easy. Now, one thing that's important is to uh, remember that young surgeons who are not, haven't grown up doing a lot of liver surgery may not be as familiar. And I had this almost a heart attack moment a few years ago when I told the young surgeon to put do the Pringle and I turned around and he was getting ready to put a coker clamp on the porta which I thought would be a bad idea. So you have to use a vascular clamp and if you slide your finger back behind the porta it's really a, a, a reasonably easy maneuver. I then carefully, I usually use a some um, relatively uh, a Satinsky and just open the jaws wide, slide the jaw posterior in. You can guide it with your finger and then just come down on it. Well, you talked a little bit about the debridement hepatectomy. Is that always something you do in initial operation? And would there be a reason to do a delayed resection? 
why, if you're doing it for hemostasis, you got to get the bleeding stuff. Now, sometimes, you know, you're sort of in the soup and you've got other issues going on and maybe you just take some of those big sutures and just sew the crap out of the liver. Just get big, deep sutures because you got other fish you need to fry and if that stops the hemorrhage for a while, so be it. And then when you come back later, maybe you're going to do the, the breedment. Now, the other thing, of course, is we observed uh, 10 years ago, I guess, that uh, hepatic necrosis was a common complication of embolization. And, of course, if the liver dies, then you're going to do the debridement, which is usually a formal right hepatic lobectomy later. Early still, but later than the first operation. When you're managing a patient with that post-embolectomy hepatic necrosis, what do you need to worry about? What should I worry about? Yeah, I, I think when we realized how common it was, um, we began looking for it, and guess what? We found it. Because those people with the bad liver injuries are kind of sick. And so they all have abnormalities of their liver functions. They all have fever. They all have white count. They all have, they all have. And so in my mind, if you embolize the liver, um, I say, okay, I'm going to, that's first on my mind for complications. And if there's any issue, and there usually is, about three days post embolization, I get a CT scan. And if there's a bunch of dead liver with air in it, we put them on the schedule for the next day and we do a lobe. Now, I will say that I think it's less common now than it used to be. And I think, at least in this institution it is, and I think that's because we do better embolization. And this was one of a thousand advantages to having our own endovascular surgery team. Because when you have people that do trauma for a living doing the embolizations, they know what the problems are and they avoid those problems. And I think we were doing um, much wider embolization than we do now. We're much more selective. And I think that's why uh, we don't see so much hepatic necrosis anymore. Still see some, but very much less. Is there a threshold, or I guess sort of what is your threshold of when to go and debris? Where is that cut off? I, I think um, a lot of this is comfort level. And I think that young surgeons should take advantage of a couple of um, opportunities and they hate doing it. The first is a bad liver injury is really a good time to call a senior friend early. And people don't want to need help. But most people in their training either do zero bad livers or two or three or four and that's just not enough. And those of us that grew up doing these things still are. You know, I get back and I look at that and I go, oh, I wish this wasn't true. I have a pretty fair idea of what to do. 
but it's not a great feeling to see the sh- a shattered right lobe of the liver. And it's one of the few things that may, gives me some anxiety when I, when I see it. And so to utilize um, senior help, I, I think, makes a huge amount of sense. It's better for the patient and it's frankly better for you because you will then learn the tips and when you're old like me, you can teach them to your young partners. I think the other thing, and this is hard to do in a RVU atmosphere, is to go, and it's hard to do because the liver transplant guys, there are five of them in every liver transplant, but if you could go scrub with somebody that does a lot of livers, the cancer guys, maybe not the transplant guys, but the cancer guys, or go help go scrub on the procurements. So you really learn your way around that anatomy. It's inordinately helpful. And I, I gotta tell you, I was pretty far into my career. When we started doing these hepatic lobectomies, we would do it me or either me and Dr. Stein or me or Dr. Stein and one of the liver guys. And I learned, you know, I was probably in my 50s at that point. I got better, I got like a lot better. And cause I got a lot more comfortable with the retrohepatic cava and how you get there and just how much of the triangular ligament you can take and how you get, take the falciform down all the way. I mean, the first time I saw somebody do it, I. He, it was Ben Philosoph, and he took the cautery and he exposed the cava, taking the uh, the falciform ligament down there. Wow! Guess what? I figured it out, now I can do that. And so, the more of these you get to do, the more at-bats you get, the better your batting average. With that being said, I remember a, a case I did with you couple years ago when I was a resident. Did I do okay? You did, sir. (laughs) But it's one of those things that scares the hell out of me. And I'd just like your take on this. It was a a brisk retrohepatic bleed. How do you approach that? Yeah, I, I think I approach them differently now than I did then, John. Because I think this bridge balloon is a complete game changer. And, you know, that is... A percutaneous balloon, you can, I mean, femoral vein is the easiest way to do it. And then, particularly if you're in the hybrid operating room and you can get this longer, softer than the Reboa balloon up in position behind the liver, it makes life much, much easier. And I, so now, I would probably use that. Back then, I'm sure we didn't. And what you have to do is have enough intestinal fortitude to go find it. It's a hard injury to expose, and the anesthesia guys really need to um, hustle. And I just look over the drapes and go, we're gonna lose a lot of blood, sorry. And then you go. And if they can't keep up with you, then uh, the patient doesn't survive. But if you don't have um, the courage of your convictions to go 
expose it and get control of it. You know, it's one of those things. Every time you try to mobilize the liver and it bleeds, you lose a couple, three units of blood and you do that four or five times and you've lost 15, 20 units of blood. It's game, set, and match by then. Now you've got no option. When trying to get control of that, what is the role of a shrock shunt? Have you done it, and is is it useful? Yeah, I don't think there is a role for a shrock shunt anymore. Um, It's another one of those things. It's always a line drawing in the book because it's complicated, and... You got to open the sternum. You got to get into the heart. You know, you're trying to hustle. I'm doing one thing, and I, the last time I did this, whoever my chief resident, my fellow, whoever it was, put the purse string suture in the atrium, and then went to tie it down and broke it. So now you got a hole in the heart. You got a hole in the cava, and it, it's a mess. And I, I, I just think that. There are two maneuvers that I think are useful for that. That The first is complete mobilization of the liver and control with intestinal alice clamps. And the second is a bridge balloon and that exposure. When you say exposure, how much of the triangular ligament? All of it. I take it all the way down to the... Um, to the cava, and we just did this guy two nights ago. You get your hand behind the liver, you deliver the right lobe ups. Somebody's, that's usually me, I expose it, and then my chief resident or my fellow, you have enough retraction so you can see it, and then it's a relatively straightforward, relatively rapid, but exposure is, is I think, 100% of getting that oper- that part of the operation done quickly. Are there any pitfalls to that exposure? And how do I avoid You make a hole in the cava, and that's bad. Um, you rip the liver by yanking on it. you got to get your hand back all the way behind the right lobe, and then you've got to really deliver the right lobe up. And once you start dividing the ligament, that gets easier. It's the first three or four inches of trying to get that mobilized that makes it more complicated. I think the other thing that I use for this that I find extraordinarily helpful is a sponge on a stick that'll just push the, the ligament out of your way. Then you divide some more and you push on it and you divide the ligament some more and then you divide it up quickly. The other thing I, I think that you can do to get down to the cava quickly is open the right chest and take the diaphragm down all the way to the cava. Now you can see everything. Well, there's another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's the deep parenchymal gunshot track. That's a challenging one. What is the Pajetti balloon? Have you used it? And what tips do you have for making it successful? I love it. I think it's a great, it's a great tool. We we just uh, wrote up the last three or four cases, and you take a stiff red rubber catheter, you put it into a one-inch Penrose drain. The hard thing 
is to find the damn Penrose drain because most operating rooms don't use them anymore. But because we, we have some around just for this. And you tie off the... Um, you tie off the uh, Penrose drain around the catheter and then at the very end. The hardest thing about using this is getting it through the tract. And what I usually do then is take a long tonsil clamp, thin tonsil clamp, and gently put it through the, um, the parenchymal missile tract. And you can either grab the Penrose drain itself or grab a heavy silk tie and then use the silk tie to introduce it through. You got to get some Penrose drain out the other side so you've got the you've got the whole track full and then you blow up the Penrose into, into a balloon and um, it'll t- give you great tamponade. It won't stop, it'll stop almost all venous bleeding, and it'll stop some decent-sized arterial bleeding, and this was uh, reported on by Renato Poggetti when he was in Denver as Gene Moore's research fellow. And the story goes, it's, it's a story, it's either true or it's not true, that Dr. Poggetti was persistent one night when Dr. Moore was in the operating room trying to handle one of these and said, let me show you, let me show you. Took apparently several times to convince Dr. Moore to, to listen and, and it worked great. Renato from Brazil and those guys, they see a lot of stuff and they, Renato brought that trick with him from, from Brazil and so I think it's a great I think the other option, this is a great place for a superficial, relatively superficial, for tractotomy. Open the tract and look, now you can see what's bleeding. And and that's nice because you, it, you can do that as one and done. You open the tract, you stop the hemorrhage and, and you're done. You don't need to go back and deflate the balloon and stuff. Well, before we get into our final questions, what important liver topic should I have asked you about, but haven't? What do you do when no matter what you do, it keeps bleeding? And when you've exhausted all of your resources, I mean, in the sense that you've done everything you can do, um, and they're just bleeding, twice in my life, I've done a total hepatectomy. The only good piece of news is nobody's higher on the transplant list than the guy that has no liver. Um, And what we did was we did a total hepatectomy. This guy had been crushed in the epigastrium with a wrecking ball. His friends played a trick on him and didn't tell him that the the building was going to be demolished. So he's in the building, the wrecking ball comes through the the wall and hits him square in the epigastrium and and took his liver off his cavern. He still had some hepatic flow from his hepatic artery, but his hepatic veins were all avulsed. He was shockingly not dead when he got here. 
and uh, but when I put my thing, my hand behind the liver to mobilize the liver, it came off, came off the cable. So we took his whole liver out. I didn't know what else to do, and did a a, a temporary portocaval shunt, I guess, and listed him. And we got a liver. We, the transplant guys put it in. We actually also he had a crush injury to the head of his pancreas, and we did a whipple. A whipple and a total hepatectomy. And he lived for, we got a, a liver, we got it plugged in, it started to work, he woke up, and then uh, sadly, we got his abdomen closed and reconstructed, and then he died of sepsis two or three weeks later. And so I think we have, I don't think that we have embraced, and that's obviously a crazy case, but the liver transplants are really good operation these days. And, and there are times, I think, when we um, play with the liver, when maybe the, the better answer would be Mars, right? Now that we have the Mars circuit, Mars is a bridge to transplant instead of trying to support what's left of this liver, which is not very much and not, very, and not working very well. So... You mentioned Mars, which is the molecular absorbent recirculating system yes. described as uh, dialysis for the liver. Yeah. Um, are there any other instances where you'd use that? Yeah, we use it. I mean, we published what was, you know, by Mars standards, a pretty big series, thirty people, and um, we use it. It's, it's FDA approved for toxic ingestion. We have used it off-label as a bridge to transplant. We've used it for severe hepatic insufficiency following injury. What when it doesn't work is a patient f- with liver failure and multiple organ failure. And it's not a cure like Roboa or many things. It's a bridge, right? It, it keeps you going so you can do something else. For toxins, I, I guess it, 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 it can be cure, right? You, because it, once their liver recovers, then they're well. But it's a great tool. Well, sir, thank you for answering the easy questions. Now we're going to move on to the hard questions. So if a turtle does not have its shell, is it nude or just homeless? It is both. All right. It is commonly described that Albert Einstein, one of the great minds of our age, had problems tying his own shoes. What are you strangely bad at? That's why I wear loafers. Fair enough, sir. I am strangely bad at turning the computer on or doing anything with the computer. Anybody that knows me knows that uh, I type with two fingers. I'm up to four now. And that if Stevie isn't there, I'm helpless. Sir, what is your passion outside of trauma? That's a great question. Eating really good food and drinking really good wine. And your rare time when you're not here and you're kicking back with some good food and good wine, what music do you listen to? White boy rock and roll. And, sir, the final question. 
What advice would you give a young Dr. Scalad just starting his career in surgery? I think that you shouldn't let the system put you in a box. And the system wants you in a box. You know, I was lucky enough to grow up in the one in a box. Now you need permission from the nurse in charge of this or the doctor in charge of that to take care of your patients. And I, I hate it because most of the time they know something about something, but it isn't about trauma or critical illness of, of any kind. And the rules uh, in the clinic don't apply to the TRU or the ICU here. And so I think that um, we have protected young surgeons in a way that robs them of their the opportunity to do what I did when I was a kid. And I think we stifle creative thought by saying, oh, you're not allowed to do that. Why not? And um, it's not that I think that we were so much smarter, but we were less constrained. And some of the best work we did was um, thinking outside that box. It's a ter I hated that term, but I can't think of a better one right now. Thinking outside the norm and saying, what, if, what do you think will happen if we do this? And some of the best work we did when I was in New York and when I first got here was the crazy ideas that turned out weren't so crazy. Dr. Scalia, thank you so much for taking time to That's talk great. to me. That's great. Had a good time. Contribute to the podcast. All right. So this is John Maddox concluding another Trauma Podcast. On behalf of Dr. Joe DeBose, Dr. Rishi Kundi, and the Trauma Podcast team, I would like to thank Dr. Thomas Scalia for his time today and invite you, our listeners, to check out all the rest of our content.